0: how does God act in history, what does it mean to be born again, and how might we as Christians understand the power of the cross? This is the time of year when that comes up, at least from time to time. So all the readings today have something to do with one or all of these subjects How do we understand the way God acts in history? What does it mean to be born again? And what is the power of the cross, if any? The story from Genesis gives us Abram, who will become Abraham. I should mention this to you. The Hebrew Bible is full of word plays and puns. So Abram is going to become Abraham, so we have exalted father, Abram, now becomes a father of many nations, Abraham. So I guess the readers of the Hebrew Bible got a chuckle out of that kind of thing. You know, one of the most famous ones, the angels visit Abraham and Sarah. And one of them says to Sarah, you're going to have a baby. Sarah's 75 years old. And she goes... (laughs) So one of the angels looks at her and says, why are you laughing? So she has a boy. And... The boy is named Isaac. God laughed. Abram doesn't loom large in today's story in the sense that he's an active participant in what takes place. It's God speaking to Abram and telling him that he needs to leave his, his country and he needs to go to a place where God says to go. And so Abram just does it. He obeys. He has faith in God. He probably they use would have used the word immuna. It means trust. And he goes, takes Lot with him and the whole retinue, and they go. So this is going to be taken up now. Here we see something about God intervening in human history, trying to make sense out of that, moving forward. What is the way that that happened? You know, most Christians, or many for a long time, and some even now, seem to emphasize God intervening in human history through events that interrupt the usual processes of cause and effect. Do you believe that that's how God works? I'm not prepared to say that that might not happen from time to time. But you know what? Things in 2011 are not really that much different from when they, the way they were in the ancient Near East. Things happen pretty much the same way. And so it is the interpretive processes that individuals have to bring to say, how do we understand the way in which God intervenes in human history. And what we're going to suggest here is that the way in which God intervenes in human history is to choose you. And you hear me say all of the time that each one of us has a role to play in big and small ways in God's plan for the cosmos. You count And by virtue of that, that means that you provide a channel in history to fulfill God's purposes. Later on in Genesis, in the story of Abraham, we have a perfect example of how we might understand that. And that's the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Abraham takes his only son very dear to him up to a mountain and he's going to kill him. He's going to sacrifice him. And once again, he listens to God. He doesn't kill his son. Now, what's not in the Bible is what happens when Abraham comes back down the mountain with the boy. All of his... Confrères are there and here. Say, Abraham, I see that you have Isaac with you. Yes. Well, you know, all of us had to kill our firstborn sons. We know this, by the way, because there's archaeological evidence around the time of Abraham that sacrificing firstborn sons was part of Canaanite religion. We have the skeletons. Abraham might say, you know, God told me not to do this. Or what kind of a God do we worship who has been faithful to us would require us to kill our firstborn sons? What sense does that make? And because of his place in the community, he begins now to have some influence on the way in which people understand their religious cult. He works through the manners, morals, and customs of people. And so God has intervened in human history for godly purposes. And what do we know from the archaeological evidence that soon after, chronologically, Abraham, who very well may have been a tribal memory... Or a composite figure of great people at the time in Canaan, this practice stopped. They weren't doing it anymore. Little boy baby, little boy's nine years old today, no more after. So God intervenes in human history by choosing people to fulfill his purposes. We can operate on an elitist basis and say, well, he's chosen the big cheeses in the Bible or certain individuals in the history of the Christian church who have been exemplars. But God chooses each of you through your baptism and marks you as his own forever. And by virtue of that, you are an instrument of God's grace and love. And by virtue of that, you can influence things in big and small ways for godly purposes. I say this often, you know, we think always in heroic terms, don't we? We've got to practice our religion in heroic terms. We've got to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. We have to think the best thoughts. We have to do the best stuff. And you know, sometimes we do our best work in the middle of the commonplace and ordinary, the quotidian aspects of living every day, you know, you make a difference. You have some influence in a godly direction. Paul, in Romans, speaking of Abraham's obedience and his faith, takes this up and does a very complex thing with it. I often think, even though it's 11 o'clock, on Sunday morning, you're sitting out there. I'm, I went to seminary. I'm sitting over there listening to Paul being read to the congregation about faith and justification. And I'm wondering, how much of this are we getting? Because I've been by this, and you know, a person working for wages, and it's gee, it's pretty, it's very important stuff. It's an extremely tightly reasoned argument. What he's trying to get at is this, that Abraham is the father of us all. I am somebody who is a person of the covenant. I'm a Jew. I kept the law, keep the law for all we know still, except when he was around the Gentiles. And we believe, of course, that Abraham is our father by virtue of the great tradition. But, you know, he became obedient and had faith before he observed any of the religious cult of any kind or there was any law. And it turns out in the biblical text that it tells us he is the father of many nations. That must mean all the nations. And so that must mean that God's unconditional acceptance, forgiveness, and love is for everybody. The nation's. And so in my ministry to the Gentiles, this is what I wish to say. That being a person who has dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's with regard to the law does not put me in an elitist position. It vests me with certain responsibilities. And one of them is to say this message is for everybody. And that it finds its full force and effect when we are able, with every fiber of our being, to trust in God and to have faith. In the gospel for today, Nicodemus, my, my grandfather's best friend, Frank Edwards, was from Salt Lake City, Utah. Frank Edwards uh, was in business in Salt Lake City, Utah, and was not a Mormon. Many years ago, obviously, uh, he moved to San Mateo, where I grew up. But he had been living in Salt Lake, and he was called on one day by some Mormon missionaries. And these were not the kids, you know, running around in neckties and doing their missionary work in wherever. These were older men who were in Salt Lake and they paid a call on Frank to talk to him about becoming a Mormon. So one guy showed up and he, the two guys showed up. One of them did all the talking. And this other guy kept sitting there quietly with his hands in his lap until at one point there was a pause in the conversation where this fellow points at Frank Edwards and he said, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? Frank Edwards said, I don't know. (laughs) I won't finish the story because there was a certain amount of unacceptable profanity that followed in the wake of that missionary effort. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you need to be born from above. You know, in other translations, it says born again. If you read it in Greek, they use the word anothen. Anothen means to be born from above. So the New Revised Standard Version translates this correctly. Nicodemus, though, takes this in a literal sense and he said, does that mean I have to go through the birthing process again What in the world do you mean when you speak about this, being born from above? And he said it has to do with being born by water and the Holy Spirit. And why this is an important reading in Lent is because one of the foci for the Lenten season is the baptismal covenant. And the importance of baptism in the sacramental life as a means of appropriating how we understand what it means to be born from above and that is to participate in the sacramental life of the Church. Father Thomas Keating, in his book, Open Heart, Open Mind, the Contemplative Dimension of the Gospel, says that grace is the presence and action of Christ at every moment in our lives. The sacraments are ritual actions in which Christ is present in a special manner, confirming and sustaining the major commitments of our Christian lives. So your participation on a regular basis in the sacramental life of the Church is a means of understanding what it means to be born from above, even if you can't believe it or feel it. The sacramental life is important. And it is a ready-made means of appropriating this. That's why it's so important to come and receive the Eucharist on Sunday. It's a real concrete way to do this and an important way. So God's grace is present in that sense. And that's what it means uh, to be born from above. Now there's another piece to this gospel which gives us the, the, the theme of the power of the cross and its importance. Although the cross is not explicitly mentioned here, but it is implicit in what Jesus says about the cross. And he speaks about something that went on in the ancient Near East, or it's in the Pentateuch in the book of Numbers. And it is a story where the people of Israel are in the wilderness for 40, day, 40 years, and they're at one point in their journey and their wandering where they've come to a place where the people have been bitten by what is described as fiery serpents, snake, poisonous snakes. And God says to Moses to take the serpent and to hold it up on a staff. and show it to the people and the people look at that and they're healed from their bites so he says just as moses held up lifted up the serpent in the desert in the wilderness so must the son of man be lifted up and we look at the son of man and we are healed a little more about this in the christian church there's a very important doctrine called the doctrine of the atonement it's one of the most problematic doctrines for many it's what was accomplished on the cross why did jesus do this what was what yada, what happened in rock ribbed evangelical circles The theory of the atonement that is the reigning one is the one known as penal substitution. Jesus paid the price for you and me by his death on the cross. He offered himself in our place And paid the penalty. Penal substitution. And of course, operating on that basis is the underlying view that somebody had to pay. I mean, you just can't have all these free-floating bad things that have happened that aren't paid for in some way. Well, today we get introduced to another theory of the atonement. Remember, I've said this to you before. There are a number of theories of the atonement. The atonement uh, is, is a theory. And as Alan Richardson said in his little book in 1935, since it's a theory, you're free to make up your own theory. About the atonement. But here's one of the ones that's pretty good. And we get it today. It's called the moral exemplarist theory. Have any of you ever heard of Peter Abelard? Remember Abelard and Heloise? Peter Abelard in the Middle Ages comes up with the moral exemplarist theory of the atonement. It means the example And in devotional terms, looking at the cross has healing power. This is intellectually problematic for a number of people. But from a devotional point of view, it has enormous power. And I can tell you as a pastor... I've had a number of people tell me about how they have experienced in their emotional, spiritual, and mental life the power of the cross by looking at it. The bishop, my bishop, my first bishop, was C. Kilmer Myers, the bishop of California. He ordained me a deacon before I went to Arizona. And I was sitting with him and about four or five other clergy uh, at something. Just, we were talking together, all of us. And he said, you know, I was in Nuremberg uh, after the war. And when I got there, he said, Nuremberg, 80% of Nuremberg was no higher than this altar rail. We bombed it flat. And I met a prominent Lutheran pastor in Nuremberg and I sat down with him and I was talking to him and I said, how can you cope with this? He said, keep your eyes on the cross. Only look at the cross. Keep your eyes on the cross. What this means, of course, is not that we are reveling in the suffering of Jesus only, but the affirmation that his suffering is united with our own suffering. And it is not an unreasonable conclusion to draw that in the midst of the challenges and the opportunities that you have been through in your life, that you may be going through at this very moment... That it is not unreasonable to suggest that our Savior is with you on the cross, with you on the cross that you're on. And looking at that cross brings healing power. After he speaks about Moses lifting the cross high, the serpent high in the wilderness and then he describes the Son of Man, he gives us what some have referred to as the gospel in a nutshell. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And by extension, some of that self-giving rubs off. And it allows you to be an instrument of God's grace and love, a channel of God's intervention in human history. So this week, think about how important that is to be a channel of God's purposes in the world. After he gives us the gospel in the nutshell, he says, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And through each one of you, amen.